You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. It's a great privilege to be with you. I'm from Houston. I don't live in Houston. Um, I like the people of Houston. I don't like Houston. I just have to put that out in front of you. All, all of you one day should just decide all together. If you all do it at once, get up and just move the whole city several states north, maybe. I don't know. Um, someplace more reasonable than Houston. I'm sorry. Already lost you. Haven't even started. Turn to Mark chapter 5 if you have a Bible with you. Mark's gospel, chapter 5. My hope this morning is to share with you from verses 21 through 43 a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, perhaps, if you are tired of waiting. If, in fact, you are weary in the waiting, I believe that I have a word from the Lord for you. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid. Only believe. And he did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. And they came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him, and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. And then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. We ask that your precious son would be precious to us, that through this word inspired by your Holy Spirit, we would see a vision of your son that is saving and satisfying, sovereign to our hearts. We know that you can do this. We ask that you would do this. It's in his name, the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Um, I don't know about you. Um, I have a particular affliction. Um, I have not learned how to wait for things very well. I, I hate to wait. I'm an impatient person. I struggle with it constantly. Um, I hate to wait. 
uh, in traffic. I hate to wait at the grocery store. I have the spiritual gift of picking the wrong line. I don't know anyone else have that particular spiritual gift. Um, it can look like it's the shortest, but as soon as I get to it, something goes wrong. The cashier has a panic attack. The machine breaks down. Something, whatever my reasoning is, is all, it always backfires on me. Um, we go to restaurants. I hate to wait for a table. Um, once you get to the table, I hate to wait for the server. They bring you the drink. I hate to wait for the food. You're done eating food. You're ready to go. I hate to wait for the ticket to come. I'm constantly waiting and I'm constantly hating that I'm waiting. And the tables have turned on me. I have two teenage daughters and when they were little, I mean, kids have zero concept of time, right? And we're supposed to outgrow this. I've never outgrown it. The, the kids, like you say, we'll, we'll do that tomorrow. They have zero clue. Tomorrow might as well be 20 years from now, right? Um, and, and so when they were little, our kids would squirm and they would whine about what, you know, not having the thing yet or, what, or not having the, you know, the event yet or whatever it was. And my wife and I, we would always say, because, you know, we're good, we're good Christians, uh, we would say to them, this is good for your sanctification. And... Uh, Kids who have no concept of time have no concept of sanctification either. But anyway, that's what we would say. This is good for your sanctification. Having to wait for this, this is good. This is going to make you more like Jesus and make you more holy. And now uh, we're in traffic and I'm angry because things aren't moving, right? And my, <laughs> my daughter said, Dad, this is good for your sanctification. And I say, shut up. It says, no one told you to speak right now. Uh, but they're right. It is. It's actually very good for my sanctification. Um, you know, we have everything is, is, is designed to move us around more quickly and, and, you know, to expedite everything. And yet we're still impatient, or at least I am. I don't know. You all must be the most patient people in the world because you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything moves so smoothly in my life. Well, God bless you, I guess. But I'm the guy staring at them. We have a microwave, right? We cook food quit more quickly than ever before. And I'm looking at the seconds like these seconds are moving really slow. Like they don't. They're not matching with my watch these, these seconds. I'm at the airport waiting on the train that's going to take you to the other terminal. Uh, I think it was in Denver, I think. And they have a little sign that helpfully tells you when the next train's coming. It's like two minutes to the next train. Three minutes go by, and I'm like, there's, there's, wrong. there's a breakdown in the infrastructure. As I'm thinking of who to send an email to, an angry email, finally the train arrives. Um, this is a serious condition. Psychologists, if you believe those jokers, the psychologists, they say that... Um, a mark of maturity is the ability to delay gratification, right? And they've done these experiments to kind of show you in children um, how things turn out for these kids who have trouble waiting. I don't know if you've heard of this thing. They, it's an experiment, some research they did. It's the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Anyone heard of the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment? It's similar to the Stanford Prison Experiment, uh, but with marshmallows. And so they, they imprison these children in these rooms, and, and they didn't imprison them. Anyway, they put a little kid in a room, and they you know, sit them at a table, and they put a marshmallow on the table in front of them. And they said to these kids, if you wait until the grown-up returns, you can have two marshmallows. So they're not forbidding the kid from eating that marshmallow. They say, you can have this marshmallow if, if you want it. But if you eat this marshmallow before the grown-up comes back, th that's it. You just have that one. But if you can wait, if you wait until the grown-up comes back, you can have two. And then they leave the room and they turn on the hidden cameras to watch these kids. And you, I mean, you can just imagine they're squirming, they're anxious. These kids, they look like they're going to explode, right? It looks like something out of a science fiction movie. They're like shaking. One little kid's like staring at the marshmallow, like it might just appear inside his stomach, you know, without him having to do anything. One little boy finds a cup. Have you seen this scene? If you've seen the footage, he has a cup and he covers up the marshmallow. Like, if I don't have to look at it, right, you know, that'll, that'll help me. It's good. He's like fleeing temptation, maybe. I don't know. He's like, cover up that marshmallow. Well, in the end, what they discovered was very few of the subjects could even consider. I mean, that grown-up might never come back. 
It might be hour. It might be tomorrow by the time that girl comes back. And I might die of starvation. I must have this marshmallow. Only one third of the subjects waited until they could receive the second marshmallow. One third. And follow-up studies to kind of prove um, how this, you know, contributes to our future success. Uh, the researchers found that children who were able to wait longer for the preferred rewards tended to have better life outcomes, right? Measured by SAT scores, uh, educational attainment, body mass index, all these other life measurements. What they learned on the backside of this is we hate to wait. We, we hate to wait. But waiting is an essential part of life, isn't it? We don't have any choice but to wait. And in fact, waiting is an essential part of the Christian life. It's embedded in the truth and the communication, the message of Christianity. In fact, when the Holy Spirit sets up residence inside your heart and begins to birth this thing called the fruit of the Spirit, part of that fruit are things like self-control and patience and peace. Learning to wait is, in fact, an essential component of Christian ministry. Zach Eswine is a pastor in St. Louis. He says that Christians are addicted to doing big things famously as quickly as possible when Christian ministry is mainly doing small, overlooked things over a long period of time. Nearly all of us have trouble waiting for conveniences, for the table, for the food in the microwave, for the grocery store. But some of us, right, like even this morning, some of us, perhaps many of us, all of us at some point have trouble waiting for things far more important than conveniences. Maybe just in your mind right now, you're thinking of something that you've been waiting for a long time, something serious, something significant. Maybe you've been waiting a long time for a kind of reconciliation. Maybe you've been waiting a long time for the alleviation of some kind of anxiety or a healing from some kind of affliction. Maybe you've been waiting a long time for the return of a prodigal, a prodigal child, or even a prodigal parent. I have numerous friends who have been praying for years that one or both of their parents would come to know Christ. All of us, of course, wait for that blessed day when this kind of pain and grief and even death itself will be no more. Well, all of this is now sort of brought to a fine point in this passage, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. There's multiple kinds of waiting in the passage. There's multiple senses of urgency in the passage and of even a kind of despair. And what we learn primarily from this story, in fact, the story within a story, is that there is no wait too long for the Lord who is always on time. And there is no wait too long for the Lord's children who are never truly in danger. Now, Jairus was one of the leaders of the synagogue, and he comes to Jesus. He falls at his feet, verse 22. And in verse 23, he begs him earnestly, my little daughter's dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And so Jesus goes to be with him. A large crowd is following them. And verse 25 begins, now a woman, and there's an interruption. Now, some will say, you know, Mark has sort of put the story inside the other story to kind of, because he's creative and he's, you know, he's crafting the narrative this way to make a certain sort of stylistic point or even a theological point. Um, but Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, which have parallels to this same story, they show it in exactly the same way. So this is not, so, you know, some sort of creative arrangement by Mark. This is actually what happened. If there's a theological point to be made here, and I think there is, it's made by the Lord who orchestrated history to this point and had this story interrupt the other story. But what's really interesting is if you know anything about the four Gospels, you probably have discovered that Mark's Gospel is the shortest of all the four Gospels. And in fact, 
Mark's gospel has the kind of literary pacing of being in a hurry. Mark's gospel is a gospel for people like me. Just give me the facts. Just, just get on through. So unlike Matthew and Luke, uh, Mark has no birth narrative. It just begins right with the action. The act, it's like right in the middle of the action. Mark's gospel ends r- r- like really abruptly. It just has this abrupt sort of dramatic climax at the end. It doesn't have a prologue like John's gospel. It just begins and it's just moving like breakneck pace. Mark's gospel is like the action movie gospel, right? Um, scholar N.T. Wright, he says, Mark's gospel would be the one that you would read in a cave by torchlight with your co-conspirators. That's the kind of tenor, that's the kind of pacing that Mark's gospel has. He's constantly in a hurry. In fact, the word that occurs um, quite frequently in Mark's gospel is the word immediately. It occurs in our passage here, but it occurs throughout the whole um, gospel. Immediately they went there. Immediately this happened. Immediately they went here. Mark is always in a hurry, but Mark's version of this story, which is also found in Matthew and Luke, Mark's version of this story is the longest of the three gospels that tell it. I find that interesting. Mark, who's always in a hurry, who's always immediately moving forward, he slows down to tell the longest version of this narrative. Why do you think that might be? I wonder if it's because Mark is trying to help us see how Jesus would often slow down for an important event. How, in fact, Jesus was kind of the master of the ministry interruption. This woman has a discharge of blood. She's had it for 12 years. In an interesting parallel, the little girl Jesus has been asked to heal, we later learn is 12 years old herself. This woman has suffered for 12 years. You don't think she was tired of waiting? That's a long time to have this affliction. She had suffered much under many doctors. She had spent all that she had. She was no better, but actually grew worse. All of her resources, all of her time, every referral, every friend who said, don't see that guy, you got to see my guy. My guy fixed so-and-so, you go to see that guy. You know, we all, she had done what we all do. She had exhausted all of her options. And not only was she not a little bit better, she actually was worse. And now she's out of money and she's out of hope. We don't know exactly what this discharge of blood was. We can speculate based on medical conditions both today and at the time. But we know a couple of things for sure from the narrative. The first is this. She'd been suffering a long time and nobody could help her. She went to the experts. They couldn't help her. Secondly, we also know, perhaps just as importantly, that in the Jewish religion and culture, a discharge of blood made you unclean. So she's considered an untouchable. Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25 says, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And so this woman, she's lived with this pain, with this anguish, but now also this shame. Personally, emotionally, spiritually, and culturally, and religiously, for over a decade, all of her money and all of her time given to solving this problem, and it's only made it worse. I don't know, maybe you're thinking of a parallel for your own life, perhaps. Maybe you've waited a long time for some problem, some concern, some illness to go away. Or maybe you just think because everyone else seems 
to succeed and you don't, or everyone else seems important and you don't, or everyone else has something that you don't have, you wonder if waiting even makes any kind of sense anymore. Or you don't have any choice but to wait, but to wait with hope. You've, you've long given up hope that anything could be any different or better for you. I don't know if it matters to you as I ponder this, because I've, I've been in that situation many times, not just waiting for an inconvenience, but waiting for deliverance. For God to fix something at the end of my rope. Very ironically, an encouragement comes to me through the scriptures. One of the most common questions throughout the Bible, in particular in the Psalms and in the prophets, is the question, how long, O Lord? How long? Even the biblical writers inspired by the Holy Spirit have come to the point of saying, I don't know if I can do this anymore. How long do I have to endure this? God, how long do I have to carry this weight? When is it going to get better? When is the light going to come on? I don't know what your situation or your grief is, but here's what I do know. I think based on this passage, three things I want to share with you. The first one is this. You are not so hopeless, you'll be forgotten. You are not so hopeless, you'll be forgotten. Like Maybe you think only Jesus cares for important people. Like theologically, you don't think that if we hand out a test with one question on it and it says, does Jesus only care about important people? You would say no, and you get 100. But sometimes you feel that way, don't you? Emotionally, maybe theologically, you know that's not true, but emotionally, psychologically, sometimes it feels that way. If only because sometimes it seems like everyone around us gets the care and we don't. Jairus was a ruler. He's an important man. And he comes as an important man to an important man, and he addresses him directly. Yes, he falls at his feet, but he's making his request to Jesus in person, to his face, essentially. And yet Jesus makes time for this woman. Now, imagine if this lady, I mean, she'd been waiting 12 years. Imagine if that 12 years of waiting had culminated in this encounter only for her to reach out for that garment and her to come like an inch short. And not only is Jesus receding into the distance, but that great crowd that's pressing in just sort of swallows up the gap and her last desperate hope just disappears into the horizon. Imagine what that would have felt like. Or Jesus turns around to rebuke her. She's got to feel beyond hope by now. She has likely mustered up every ounce of hope that she has just to make that reach. And she discovers that she's not outside the scope of Christ's redemption. In fact, nobody really is, provided they want it. We see the same truth over and over again with who Jesus is fraternizing with throughout the Gospels. Yes, he goes to dinner with religious leaders and important people, but over and over and over again, he is prioritizing the underprivileged, people in the margins, people on the outskirts of polite society, that people on the outside of acceptable decorum. We see it in the way that he welcomes both women of ill repute and little children who have nothing to offer him. Brothers and sisters, when you tug on Jesus' coat, he's not sighing or rolling his eyes. He loves to be pestered. Matthew 19, he says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. But 12 years is a long time. I'm reminded of another person in the Bible, a fellow who was paralyzed. You remember that guy who's 
laid by the pool of Bethesda? 38 years that guy waited. 38 years. Believing if I could just get in that water, I'll be healed. And no one's helping him. And perhaps every day people are stepping over him to go get their own blessing while he lays there thinking, is this ever going to end? Why can't I just die? And one day John's gospel tells us 38 years this guy waited. Jesus shows up and it says instantly the man got well. There are no little people in the kingdom of God. I wonder if this woman felt the pain and the weight was worth it. 12 years. How long have you been waiting? How long have you been wondering if the Lord cares, if he loves you, if somehow maybe you've slipped through the cracks? Like maybe he's forgotten about you. But the God of the universe is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipotent. He is all powerful and he is omnipresent. He is everywhere simultaneously. So you may be at the end of your rope, but that's where most people discover that Christ is more than enough. I'm here to tell you that you are not so hopeless, you'll be forgotten. The Lord sees and the Lord knows. Secondly, you are not so weak, you'll be forsaken. You are not so weak, you'll be forsaken. Verse 22, Jairus comes, when he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet, which is really interesting because earlier in the chapter in verse 6, the demon-possessed man also falls down at the feet of Jesus. Falling down at the feet of Jesus seems to be an essential part of faith. And he begs him, he implores him earnestly, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so she may be made well and live. He calls her my little daughter, which is telling us something because later we see she's 12 years old. She's not little. Well, she's not so little anymore. And yet, I'm a father of daughters. They're 16 and 18. When they're hurting, when they're worried, or if I'm just worried for them, they never stop being your little girl, do they? Always my little girl. Jairus is carrying his daughter in his heart. She's not a little girl anymore, but for him, my little girl's in trouble. She's, she's going to die. You see his affection. This is echoed even by Jesus later. And you see his sense of urgency. He's begging him. She's on the brink of death. Now, Jairus has got to be, in, in essence, at the end of his rope. And we can make some assumptions, I think, some reasonable assumptions from the text based on the culture, based on their position. He's coming to Jesus when his daughter is near death. So this is essentially his last resort. Maybe Jairus has thought about going to Jesus before. Before she got so sick, she was on the verge of death. She was just a little sick, maybe. But Jairus might have been thinking, you know, I see Jesus, he interacts with religious leaders all the time, people like me, and he doesn't say a lot of nice things to religious leaders. I'm not sure I'm going to go talk to him. Or maybe Jairus isn't sympathetic with Jesus' cause himself. Maybe he's one of those religious leaders who is upset with Jesus, but now he's out of options. So he comes and he falls at the feet of Christ, and he's desperate, and Jesus goes to help him, and then this interruption. This woman heard about Jesus. She comes up behind him in the crowd. She touches his clothing. Matthew and Luke tell us that's actually the, the fringe of his clothing, the tassel of his robe. She's thinking, if I could just touch his clothes, I can be healed. 
And instantly her flow of blood ceased. And she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And at once, verse 30, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. And let's just be honest, that's kind of cool. I don't know, I mean, none of us knows what it feels like to be the God man, but this is a God man. And like, I mean, what does that feel like? Power is like, wah, you know, power comes out of him. He's like, uh, I've healed someone, you know, that's what, I don't know. <laughs> and he turns around and he says, who, who touched me? Who touched my clothes? Did, does he not know? Did he not know? This is really interesting. I don't know if you get hung up on stuff like this. I get hung up on stuff like this. Who touched my clothes? I'm like, hold on, you're God incarnate. People walk away from you going, this guy told me everything I ever did. This guy reads my mail without opening the envelope. Did he not know? So it's possible this is some kind of like divine self-limitation. There are very few things that we're told in the scriptures that Jesus doesn't know. For instance, he says, the father knows the day and the time of the end. I, the son does not. That has to be an inter, a, a self-limitation. No one can externally put a limitation, uh, a, a lack of knowledge on the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is, he, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ. So it has to be a kind of self-limitation of some kind. Maybe that's what this is. I'm not sure. But I actually think it's something else. I think this is an echo of Genesis chapter three. If you remember, Adam and Eve have disobeyed. They've eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and they brought death into the world, sin into themselves. The world is now broken. It's cursed because of them. And so they realize their vulnerability and they realize their condemnation before a holy God because of their disobedience. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves and they go and they hide in the bushes and the Lord comes walking in the garden. And do you remember what he says? Verse nine, chapter three, where are you? Did he not know? He knew exactly where they were. He's not saying, I have no idea where you are. You hid so well that, no. No, he's, he's trying to provoke a reckoning. And I think this is what Jesus is doing with this woman. He's provoking faith in her. His disciples don't understand. They're not remembering Genesis 3, maybe. I don't know. The disciples say, you see the crowd. What do you mean? <laughs> Who touched me? Everyone's touching you. The crowd is pressing in on you. But he's looking around. He's looking for the woman. He's trying to call her out. And she comes with fear and trembling. And she, know, she knows what happened. And she falls down before him. And she tells him the whole truth. And he says to her in verse 34, you piece of garbage. If you don't have your Bible open, you're like, I don't remember Jesus saying that. I mean, he called a woman a dog once, but I was like, a really isolated incident, you know, he had a bad day, I don't know. No, it's, it's really significant what he does say. Because he doesn't say, woman, lady. He says, daughter. Daughter. Can you imagine those words coming out of his mouth and that woman's ears, who had been not just in pain, but in shame an outcast, excluded, untouchable, considered garbage by the world around here. And here's the God of the universe in the flesh saying, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. What we have in this story, the story within a story, 
is two portraits of faith, one embedded in the other. It's like Mark has taken one story of faith and he sort of stuffed it into the other story of faith. And it's showing us a contrast here. There's some part of the story that indicates to us she wasn't entirely trusting. She thought if she showed herself, right? And this is completely rational. This is, this is completely logical. Everyone else treats her like garbage. Everyone else throws her away. Everyone else would never want to talk to her, much less touch her. I, I can't go to, to his face. Maybe if I steal the blessing, so to speak. She believes that Jesus can heal her. She's not sure that he would or will. Jairus believes Jesus can and thinks, if I go as an important man to an important man and ask him directly, I'm inclined to think he'll say yes. Two portraits of faith. Strong faith, Jairus, I'd go directly. He can and he will. The woman, he can, not sure if he will. Weak faith. And yet what we see is they both get the healing. The love that Jesus shows this woman even when she's tried to, in effect, steal the blessing, certainly shows his interest in her. You're not so weak. You'll be forsaken. The Bible says, cast all of your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Jairus comes fully convinced. He approaches Jesus directly. The woman tries stealth. When confronted, she is full of fear and trembling. He calls her daughter. A weak faith and a strong faith receive the same measure of grace. Augustus Toplady, uh, old dead theologian guy, perhaps most famous for writing the classic hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me have myself in the... His work on assurance has been really helpful to me, assurance of faith, really has ministered to me. He says in his most prominent sermon on assurance that a weak finger can receive a wedding ring. He says a feeble faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. Brothers and sisters, you don't need a strong faith to be saved. You need a true faith to be saved, but you don't need a strong faith because it's not the strength of your faith that saves. It's the strength of your Savior. Your salvation is not contingent on the strength of you, but on the strength of the one who has bought you with his blood. It's not a strong faith that saves. It's true faith. It's a strong Savior. You are not so weak. You'll be forsaken. Jesus, in fact, said, you can have faith the size of a mustard seed and say to this mountain, fall into the ocean. There's time even for you. Maybe Jairus knows this. I don't know. But picture him during this moment. He has come to Jesus out of urgency. Jesus urgently turns to go with him. And then this interruption. We don't have any indication from the text that he's saying anything or thinking anything. But put yourself in his shoes. My daughter's about to die. Come and heal my daughter before she dies. Jesus goes. He's interrupted. I would think that Jairus' need to wait a little longer has got to be ripe with, with, with urgency, with impatience, perhaps. This woman's waited 12 years, it turns out. She couldn't wait a little longer. My daughter's about to die now. As far as we know, he says nothing. And then, as he's standing there, perhaps thinking, come on, I don't have much time, his worst fear comes true. While he's still speaking, people come from the synagogue, from his house, and they say, your daughter is dead. We're very sorry. The, the worst case scenario has come true. Let's not bother Jesus anymore. 
And Jesus overhears what's being said, and he tells Jairus, don't be afraid. Only believe. I wonder what Jairus was thinking this whole time. He's issued no objection. Surely he has a growing anxiety. And now what he has feared could happen has happened. And Jesus' word to him is, I'm really sorry. No, it's don't be afraid. When Christ is involved, the worst case scenario is never as bad as it seems. So, in fact, thirdly and finally, you are not so sick that you can't be healed. You are not so sick that you can't be healed. Jesus goes. He doesn't let anyone accompany him. He takes his best friends, Peter and James and John. Those are three of the disciples Jesus seems the closest to. He takes them. They come to the leader's house. There's a commotion going on. People are weeping and wailing loudly. Matthew in his gospel tells us the professional mourners have shown up. They're playing the flute and all kinds of things like that. And he goes into them and says, why are you guys making a commotion? Why are you crying? This child isn't dead. She's asleep. Like, no, wait, Jesus, didn't, didn't you hear? The worst has come to be. Don't you see the mourners? She's dead. It, Jesus, it's too late. It's too late, Jesus. And here's a reminder to us, to you and to me, that we ought not to set our sights so low. Because despite what the world thinks, there are worse things than dying. Like, as far as the world's concerned, that's the worst thing that happened to you, which is why they do everything they can to kind of forestall death. Or even to, first of all, thinking of it. But we're all going to die. I mean, it's, just a, it's just living in the broken world. None of us gets to escape that. Why? Do you know 100 out of 100 CrossFitters die? True. They don't tell you that when you sign up for the thing. 100% of eaters of kale die. Right? It ain't on the bag, but it's true. That's why I don't mess with either one. I play it safe. It's not, not for me. Everybody who does that dies. No, we're all going to die, right? But there are worse things than can happen to you. Dying after you die is the worst thing that can happen to you. Because Jesus is Lord over life and death, the death of your body is no hindrance to him. This is a concept I think even lost in a lot of churches, which is forgotten that the blessed hope is not simply going to some ethereal bliss, going to heaven when we die, but really receiving an imperishable body at the resurrection to come. Every resurrection, in fact, every raising of the dead in the scriptures is a picture of that moment. Before I moved to Kansas City about um, five years ago, I pastored a church in Vermont. And um, it's an old church, historic church in this little town of Vermont. And right catty corner to the church was the old cemetery. And you could walk over there, as I often did, and the gravestones there. I mean, it's, I mean, it's old. I mean, it's, you know, some of the, you know, the graves there, people who died, they, you know, lived during the late 1700s. Some of them born before the Revolutionary War and what have you. And I would walk around and just see these old tombstones. Some of them so old and so weathered that the names were almost all but erased from uh, just the wind and the, and, and the elements on there. I think this is going to be me someday a stone that had my name and now just a blank thing. There was a guy here. That's going to happen to me. I better put my sights on something else. But some of the ones you could still read, this was back when, you know, cemeteries had better theology, I guess, but they had these little poems. They're a little more creative. And, uh, and so I wrote down a couple of my favorite cemetery tombstone poems. Uh, one of them said this, it says, death, my friends, is nothing frightful if we're prepared to go. Jesus makes all things delightful when we leave this world of woe. 
But my favorite one comes from a fellow. You could read his name. His name was Lamson Minor. He died September 2nd, 1806. He was 32 years old, so a young man. On top of the cross of his tombstone, right underneath his name, was a little quote. It said, sudden and unexpected, I was summoned to this solitary mansion. And then underneath a little poem, it said, ho, ho, beware, beware, for time is hastening. I shall soon wake on that consummate morn. He's just sleeping. He's just sleeping. Now, this passage isn't teaching that there's a kind of like soul sleep or anything like like that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what Christ is helping us to see is because he is God and because he has conquered death, death is just like, for him, just like taking a nap. It's no big deal. You die, you're going to wake up. If his work is true, in fact, we have to radically reevaluate our conception of death. If we are in Christ, there is nothing, nothing that can conquer us because there is nothing that can conquer him. And there is nothing that he will take from us in this broken world that he will not give back to us in some way, a millionfold, including a restored body. Now for the faithful, this is really comforting. But for the worldly, this is so foolish. This is it. You only live once. Seize the day. After this, it's over. Eat, drink, and be merry. They laughed at him. Verse 40. But he put them all outside. And I don't know what that means, but I'm picturing Jesus like kicking flute players in the butt, you know, out the door, like shoving. You know, he drove people out with a whip once. I can picture him throwing some elbows in this room. No, he put, however he did it, he put them all outside. And then he takes daddy's hand in his hand, and he takes mommy's hand in his other hand, and he leads them into the child's bedroom, and he sits down by her bedside, and then he takes her little hand in his, and he says, Talitha Kaum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. To call her little girl is, is, is to echo Jairus' affection. Talitha is a term of endearment. Literally, it means little girl, but it would be for their day, like in our day, sort of the parlance of, a, of saying to a small child or to one you love, honey or sweetie. That's what Talitha meant for them. So you see what Jesus is doing here. This girl has died. But because he is Jesus, the Lord, God incarnate in the flesh, sovereign over life and death, the head of all rule and authority, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the sustainer of the universe by just a word of his power, he is treating her like it's time to get up and eat breakfast and go to school. Verse 42, Mark's favorite word, immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Well, I should say so. She wasn't mostly dead. She, she's dead. As I mentioned earlier, my wife and I, we have two daughters, 16 and 18, two daughters who are living. We lost a child between them. Our second child, we were living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time, but we were actually here in Houston. It was 4th of July. I remember the first signs that something was wrong. We, we, we could tell this was a serious enough issue. We need to go to the hospital. And we went over to the 
Methodist Hospital there in, um, in the Willowbrook area. And I remember sitting in this little room. That's, it was dark. The lights were very dim. And the technician was looking for signs of life in um, my wife's womb and wasn't talking to us. I just remember it was so silent and uh, so dark. It just felt like this dark cloud was enveloping us. And then finally, I guess a doctor or someone else came in the room and they're whispering to each other. And it's just, it's just notable. They're not talking to us. They're not saying anything to us. And I'm just thinking, this, this cannot be happening. This is, and we were so afraid. And later, a doctor came to us and informed us that we did in fact lose our child and they were going to send us home. And we were, as we were getting ready in one of the hospital rooms, it was just like shock is sitting in. And there was a, uh, a male nurse who had come in and I remember he was making jokes. And I don't remember, I remember thinking like, does he not know what just happened? Or does he just not know how to, how to help people or to give, you know, to, to comfort people or what have you? I, I just felt, I felt mocked, not necessarily by him. I mean, I felt he was insensitive, but I just felt like, like death is mocking us. It's the worst moment of our lives. And that shock lasted for days. And then eventually the outpouring of emotion that comes in. Some of you know, I mean, this is not a, a rare experience. Many of you have been through this experience. As we're processing our grief together, my wife and I decided that we would name um, our little baby angel. And, and not because we think when, when someone dies and they go to heaven, they become an angel, but just simply this is our child who's in heaven. We're going to call her angel. And we just sort of resolved later as we processed our grief that um, we were going to believe we'll be reunited with Angel when it's our time to be in heaven someday, that we'll see her, be able to look in her eyes. A year later, we were pregnant again, and it was a difficult pregnancy. There was stress and some other factors that were complicating our baby's growth and were causing Becky a lot of discomfort. And so the fear is just there. We, we could lose another child. And in fact, the doctor had... Um, uh, instructed Becky to, to let her employer know that she needs to work from home. And then later, you know, bed rest was assigned. And after the miscarriage, we just, we, we were scared about how things were going to turn out. And our, our second daughter, daughter was, was carried all the way to term, but I remember her birth and it was really difficult. And I remember in the hospital room and I had, you know, I was videotaping, you know, I had my little um, video camera there. And um, when baby was born, there was no noise. And um, which is not totally uncommon, but I could see on the nurse's face, on the, on the delivery nurse's face, there was like this look of concern. And that's when I thought, oh no, this, this cannot happen. Not at this point, this cannot happen. And I put the camera down and see the nurse eventually got, you know, baby over um, to this little bassinet thing and trying to clear out her, 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 her throat, her lungs or what have you. And just, it was the most painful silence that I'd ever heard. It was just so unnerving. And I just was calling out to God, you please do not let this happen. And at the end of this silence, there was this climactic, beautiful, the most beautiful wail that I've ever heard in my life. And we named our baby girl Grace. And Grace was due on July 4th, but she was born July 5th, exactly one year and one day from the passing of Angel. And what we have discovered is that Grace ever since has had a timing of her own. We waited on Grace. We're still waiting on Grace. She's 16 years old. Sweeties, it's time to go to school. Where's Grace? I, I think she's still in bed. Oh, man. 
She comes down, Dad, this is good for your sanctification. I'm like, well, <laughs> yes, Grace, it is. Grace is always good for my sanctification. Grace has a timing of her own still. And God's grace has a timing of its own. It's never late. It's never late. In my kind of retrospective fantasies, Jesus came into that somber ultrasound room and and into that examination room and into that get ready to leave room. And he took that insensitive nurse and he puts him outside. (laughs) There will come a day when those who mock the faithful, who jeer at them for both their grief and their hope are going to get their comeuppance. If it seems to take too long, do not doubt it's coming. The church will not suffer the derision of the world one second longer than God has planned. And in a splendid vision of exulting triumph, the Lord is going to put the jawing and the sneering away. And he's going to take his children by the hand and he's going to deliver them. Get up. It's time to rise. And all of the grief and all of the pain and all of the fear and all of the weight of the entire broken mess of life is going to be brought down to this finest point of a hush in the gentle words, it's time to get up, honey. Just like the wild storm immediately ceases at the command of Christ. And God has given us two beautiful growing daughters. They're the light and joy of my life. And I think of Angel. I don't know what her face looks like, but I picture her smile like her mama's smile and sparkling blue eyes like her mama's eyes and a little tiny gentle wisp of a hand. And I think maybe, I hope maybe that Christ will grant me this little fantasy when my time is up and I have to wake up on the other side. The most consuming vision, the most satisfying vision will be Christ himself, the center of the new creation, the lamb who is the lamp of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the point of heaven. And yet I wonder if my host might be little angel and I might be blinking my eyes and wake up to see this little hand in mine and hear a little voice in a heavenly tongue say, it's time to get up, daddy. Look, maybe your experience of the Christian life is one in which you don't feel fully embraced by Christ because you believe he's obligated himself to you. For the longest time, I just felt like, I mean, he's got to love me. He kind of painted himself in a corner with this one, right? But if he had to do it over again, he wouldn't pick me. But the Lord isn't like that. He owes us nothing. And yet the fact that he loves us willingly and affectionately, the Lord loves you, and he likes the you that he plans for you to be. You may not be healed of physical affliction this side of the veil, but you who are in Christ will be healed of physical affliction for eternity. You know, I mean, the bleeding woman and Jairus' daughter, they both had to die eventually. You realize that? Like every person Jesus raised from the dead, they had to go die again. It's not such a great deal for them if they were believers, right? When I think of Lazarus, I was doing great. My sisters, they can handle themselves. They're a great team. They don't need me. But it's a reminder to us, isn't it? Not to set our sights too low. Because what really ails us, what will really kill us, is the sin that separates us from God. And the reason Christ has come is not primarily to make sick people well, but to make dead people live. And the death that is the wages of sin is far worse than the death that is the wages of a broken world. 
And yet Christ can heal us from even that. The death after death. There is no sin too great for his grace. His sacrifice on the cross is sufficient for you. His blood is more than enough for your pardon. I don't know what your ailment is, what your affliction may be in this broken world, but your greatest disease is your sin. But Christ's cross and resurrection are proof you are not so sick that you can't be healed. And one thing we learn from this interruption is that on the way to resurrection, our salvation is part of the story. On his way to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, Jesus heals the woman and makes her part of the story. So as we rush headlong toward the second coming of Christ, there is time enough for the salvation of all who will trust in him. He's not slow, Peter says. He's patient. Mark is telling the story, um, tradition tells us, from Peter, that Mark is essentially Peter's secretary. All these stories are Peter recounting his eyewitness accounts. Peter might even be thinking of this when he writes in his own letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wanting any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. And you're healing from disability or illness or just from the ordinary pain of a broken world, you may, for you, it may just be like, it's nothing physical. I wish it was. I could go to a doctor and get medicine or, or therapy or something. I just carry around the storm inside of my soul and I can't get rid of it. I can't snap out of it. I just want this dark cloud to leave me. I don't know what it is for you. And your healing might not come for a long time. This is a place of truth. It's not for us to promise you that these things instantly go away. Many times the Lord heals. I believe he still heals. But many times the Lord says, you have to wait. You might have to wait on that, but you're healing from sin? You don't have to wait on that. Your healing from sin can be part of the story now, if you want it. Those of you who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, and yet you still suffer from some kind of ailment, maybe you feel forgotten in the waiting. Remember, he has promised he will never leave you or forsake you. He is coming quickly. And even if you die, he says to Lazarus's sisters, yet shall you live, and those who believe in me will never die. The love of Christ is so deep, there is more than enough for you if you want it. The question before you this morning is this, do you want it? Do you want it? To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.